Please be seated. Let's pray. The matchless name of Jesus. We are in awe of you, Jesus, and we love you so much. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us enough to die for us. Thank you for loving us enough to pay the penalty for our sins. Thank you for loving us enough that you give us the incredible, amazing privilege of becoming part of your family. Oh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would use your word now to teach us, and I pray that you would prepare all of our hearts to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. It was June the 16th. Having just accepted the Republican Party's nomination to run for his state's open Senate seat, he stood to address the crowd. But it was a difficult time, tumultuous time in our country. Dark storm clouds loomed on the horizon. But rather than run from the coming conflict, he openly addressed it. As a politician who, he made some pretty stirring and amazing speeches in American history, his ensuing speech is widely regarded to be one of his most memorable. The year was 1858, and standing before the state capitol in Springfield, Illinois, Abraham Lincoln began by quoting the words of Jesus. He said this, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. And, of course, we know that it took seven years for that actually to be accomplished, four of which were the bloodiest times in American history. But he was correct. Today, what we are going to do, and the reason I mention Abraham Lincoln's speech, is because the words that he quoted of Jesus are words that we're going to look at together this morning. I hope that you're with me in Mark chapter 3. What, what's really interesting, and, and honestly it was kind of puzzling, is how Mark, what he does is he sandwiches this passage in between verses about Jesus' family. So, so it's a little bit weird. The outline's going to seem odd to you, and I don't do this to try to make you hungry before the dinner hour or anything like that. I apologize if it has that effect, but what I want you to do is think about a sandwich, Because what we are going to do, this passage really unpacks just like a sandwich. So, the bottom bread of the sandwich. A rash statement made by Jesus' immediate family. Let me read verses 20 and 21 and have you follow along. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then he, this is Jesus, he went home and the crowd gathered again. So that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. Wait, back the family truck up a minute here. What in the world is going on? Why would his own family members seem to be turning 
on him? Well, first of all, we have to remember the context. Verses 7 through 12, Jesus was practically being crushed. We saw this last week. He was being crushed by the crowds of people who came because they were eager and desiring just wanting so desperately to be healed by him. And so Jesus, he got away from the crowds. He went up onto the mountain, if you remember, and he spent the night in prayer. And after spending the night in prayer, he then selected, he chose his 12 apostles. Well, now what we are reading is picking right up at that point because Jesus now has come back down off from the mountain. He goes into a home in Capernaum. So, Let's say that you had been one of those people who had traveled for days and weeks hoping to be healed by Jesus. But all of a sudden, he went up on a mountain. He was gone. You didn't know where he was. You didn't know when he was going to be coming back. So what would you have done? Would you have just abandoned your quest and said, well, I guess I missed my chance. I'm going to go on home. Of course not. You would have kept waiting and you would have kept watching and just longing and desperately hoping for his return. And so the moment that you see him returning, coming back down into the city, the crowds were still just as intense, I think, as when he went up onto the mountain. They were just as hopeful that they could be healed as they were when he went up on that mountain. And so I suspect even that the crowds might have continued growing during his absence. And so people, throngs, masses of people were there, there desperately, desperately waiting for Jesus and hoping that they would be healed by him. So that's the setting. I think we get that. But but what's up with Jesus' family? Now, the King James Version translates it as his friends. Uh, my, my translation says that it was his family. Uh, The Greek here, it literally means those with him, or those from the side of him, or it can mean his own people, which seems a little bit ambiguous to us. But it was actually a very common idiom. It was a very common way of talking about a person's family. So that, combined with the fact that we will see a little bit later in verse 31, that Jesus' mother and brothers are mentioned, I think that the best translation here is that it was Jesus's family. But okay, let's say it was his family. Why their rash and bizarre statement that he was out of his mind? Doesn't that seem confusing? Why did did they do that? (laughs) That's a really good question. So if you know the answer, I want you to see me after the service and fill me in, okay? <laughs> okay, there's, there's three possibilities. Let me just go over them. A, they really believed he was crazy, right? It's, it's worth noting that, that two of his brothers, James and Jude, both of whom later wrote a New Testament book, they did not become believers until after his resurrection. So it's very possible that they really thought he was out of his mind. B, They did it to protect their own reputations. Maybe they were trying to fend off any possibility of Jesus besmirching the family reputation, the family name. Maybe they wanted to avoid any any bit of guilt by association. Or C, 
They were genuinely trying to protect him. Obviously, they knew at least some of the opposition that was against Jesus, some of which we're going to see in just a few moments here. So they knew that there were people, they knew there were religious leaders who opposed Jesus. So maybe they thought that they could protect him by saying that he was insane and then (laughs) grabbing him and getting out of Dodge, so to speak. Because notice it says here that they wanted to seize him. Maybe it's a combination of all three. I really don't know. The text does not make it clear to us. So again, all we can really do is surmise why. But the reality is that they did that. It's kind of jarring, I think, when you read that, to hear his family made this incredibly rash statement about him. Okay, so that's the bottom piece of bread. Now, let's put some pack some middle some meat into our sandwich. I almost said the, the, the meat of the sandwich, but see, I really like peanut butter and jam. That's my favorite. So I thought, well, that's not really meat, and I don't want to downgrade my sandwich choice. So, so I'm just calling it the middle of the sandwich, okay? It's a ridiculous claim made by Jesus' enemies. Look at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. Now, some translations say Beelzebub, while others might say Beelzebub. And while that's kind of an interesting word study, and feel free to do that, uh, truthfully, it doesn't really matter. Everyone knew that they were saying that Jesus was possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. It was clear to what he was taught or what they were talking about. And they were claiming that it was through Satan's power that Jesus was casting out demons. Now, we've all we've all made some really big mistakes, right? It's it's understandable. Like, like the NFL blaming the players for a blatant mistake made by a referee, which cost which cost a team an important game that has major playoff ramifications. Oh, I'm sorry. Is it, is it too soon? Too soon for that? <laughs> that was a bad mistake. But this is so far beyond it. This is a huge... If, that, if that's a mistake, this, there's not even a word for what is going on here. And making it worse, this is not just a one-time decision that was wrong. Here, okay, here we have scribes coming all the way from Jerusalem. And of course, remember this is geography. We south, Jerusalem's south, but every because Jerusalem is on a mountain, it always says in Scripture that they came down from Jerusalem. It didn't matter which geographic direction they were going. They went north, but they were coming down from Jerusalem. These scribes came all the way from Jerusalem, which, by the way, let me just say, it shows us, gives us a little clue just to how nervous the religious leaders were becoming in Jerusalem, even, about Jesus. Because Jerusalem, that's like 80 miles minimum distance. And that's if they took the direct route, which they probably did not. Most Jews 
And I would certainly think the religious leaders did this. What they would do, they did not want to go through Samaria, so they would cross over onto the east side of the Jordan and go north and then come back. So however far this was, 80 miles minimum, and they made this claim, ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. And Jesus shows them, he was so wise, he shows them just how incredibly ridiculous their statements were. Let's look at verse 23, and I'll read several as you follow. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, (laughs) how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Now, that's some pretty airtight logic, isn't it? What's the old saying? Uh, Divide and conquer, right? And that's because division always leads to weakness. So to say that Satan was empowering Jesus so that Jesus could cast out Satan's demons, his minions, it's absolutely nuts. It's completely nonsensical that they would make this claim. It's ridiculous to think that Satan would be at war with his own followers as a way of trying to overcome Jesus. There's no sense, there's no logic whatsoever in their statement here. Truly, as Jesus so aptly stated, and as Abraham Lincoln famously quoted, a house divided against itself cannot stand. A divided kingdom is destined to be a defeated kingdom. So I think we understand that. Jesus has nailed them right there. That's just crazy, ridiculous. But he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 28 and following. He goes on and says this, Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Any questions? I didn't think so. Let's move on to point number three, okay? Okay. Probably need to stop. We probably need to talk about this. I really wanted to run on to the next point, but (laughs) we need to talk about this. Because especially, I think that these verses have caused a lot of people a lot of angst. Such thoughts as, what if I've committed the unforgivable sin? What if I've accidentally blasphemed against the Holy Spirit? If I do that, will I be condemned forever and ever to hell? Some serious questions that can understandably lead to much consternation if we don't really understand what Jesus 
was saying. So, so let's let the Bible help us figure out this kind of a difficult, challenging passage. I, I, I know I've told you this many times in the past, but it's been a little while. So I need you to help me out. I, I need you to re- help me remember what that is. We've talked before about the, three, the first three rules of biblical interpretation. Do you remember those? Context, context, and context. Always, always start with the context. So let's do that. Let's see what this context tells us. First of all, I want you to look again there at verse 28. He says, all sins will be forgiven, even blasphemy. We we know that Paul, we we saw this a couple weeks ago when we were in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul said that he had been a blasphemer. And we know that he became a Christian, a follower of Christ. We know that he served him faithfully and he now is with Christ. So, so no, we don't have to worry that maybe, maybe we blasphemed in a way that is going to be unforgivable. Maybe, maybe we've done a sin, the one sin that is just a little bit too much for Christ's blood to wash away. No. No. Remember, 1 John 1, 9, many of you can quote that. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no sin that we can commit that Christ's blood is not sufficient to pay for. Secondly, in the context here, these scribes were willfully refusing to acknowledge that Jesus was accomplishing his works through the power of God, through the Holy Spirit. And instead, they were attributing his power to Satan. This is, I tried to sum it up this way. This wasn't an isolated act of sin, but rather defiant hostility towards the spirit-empowered person and work of Jesus and a rejection of him as Messiah. That's the sin that is eternal. That's the sin that will not, cannot be forgiven. Let me just share some quotes with you. John MacArthur writes it this way. He says, It demonstrated an absolute and permanent refusal to believe, which resulted in loss of opportunity to ever be forgiven. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says that such a persistent attitude of willful unbelief can harden into a condition in which repentance and forgiveness, both mediated by God's Spirit, become impossible. This is something unique. I gave this quote, because I think that this really sums it up the best. This is a, from the New Bible Commentary, this is a deliberate closing of the heart and mind to the witness of the Spirit to Jesus. Such a willful and deliberate twisting of truth makes repentance and salvation impossible, for it has shut the one gate to salvation that God has opened. It goes on to say this, It is not that God is unwilling to forgive, but that the person concerned is unwilling to receive his forgiveness. So can you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, unintentionally commit this unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Spirit? No, we cannot. In fact, 
just the fact that you may have worried at some point in your life that maybe you did that, (laughs) that shows that you never did. Uh, To put it in a different way, a blasphemer of the Spirit would never have any concern that he may have committed an unforgivable sin because their heart is too hardened to even care. Does that make sense? If you've ever worried about it, then you've never done it. So please, sleep well at night. The blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient for all of our sins. All of our sins. Okay, so that's the middle of our sandwich. Okay, that's the peanut butter and the the jam. Or meat if you choose. Thank Thank you for that commentary. So... Here's the top bread, top bread of the sandwich, okay? I've so lost it here, haven't I? All right. The top bread. The last point is this. A reassuring affirmation made by Jesus about his extended family. Let's keep reading verses 31 through the end of the chapter. And his mother and his brother came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother... And your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Well, hmm. So, since Jesus' family called him crazy, was this his, him refusing to acknowledge them, kind of a tit-for-tat type of thing? Hardly. <laughs> Not at all. Jesus never worked that way. He never, I want to be clear on this, he never pushed his family away. In fact, if you remember, one of the very last things he did while he was dying on that cross is he addressed John and he addressed his mom, Mary, because he made sure that John would take care of Mary once he was dead. He never abandoned his family. And as I mentioned earlier, we know that at least two of his brothers, James and Jude, they later came to faith in him. He, he saved them from their sins, just as he does for us. He never pushed his family away or never rejected them. There is nothing negative here. There's nothing demeaning here regarding his physical family. He was not renouncing them. I just want to be clear on that. You're not renouncing them in any way, shape, or form. Instead, Jesus was redefining the meaning of family and enlarging it so that any of us can be included. That is an absolute marvel of God's grace. He invites the entire world into this intimate relationship of becoming part of his family. I am staggered by that when I think of that in my own life. Yes, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Yes, he is my master and my king. Yes, he and he alone is my salvation. But he is also my brother. And he is your brother, too, if you do the will of God, which which means that you acknowledge him as God in human flesh, and yet you accept his free gift of salvation. No one who places their faith and trust in him will ever be excluded 
from his family. Reciprocally, no one who refuses to place their faith and trust in him will ever be included. Don't miss this. He leaves the choice to us. What a miracle. What a wonder. Here he is, the infinite God of the universe, and yet he offers this freely to us and he lets us receive him or reject him. It's just incredible. Don't ever read this and think, man, Jesus kind of kind of paying back his family for the way that they said the bad words about him. No, no. He just extends it to us. That is just incredible. So that's the passage here. Now, true confession. I really, I really struggled with this passage. It was really kind of hard for me because verse 31 clearly picks up right where 21 left off. We, we could just read 21 and go right into 31 and it, it's there. So why did Mark insert this almost parenthetical passage about a kingdom and a house being divided right in the middle of verses about his family? It it seemed to me, as I studied and read it, it seemed to me like verses 22 through 30 just didn't really fit the context. If he had just let it flow from 21 to 31, Mark, I'm with you, I understand that, I'm good. But he sticks this other part right in the middle of that. He sandwiches it, I I had to use that, right? He sandwiches it there in between this passage about his mom and brothers and this other part where he extends the family of that. So it was not an easy passage for me, but but after a lot of prayer and a lot of study, I'm a slow learner. Sometimes God just kind of has to just keep pounding on me before I finally get it, and all of a sudden it just made perfect sense. I wish you'd have done that like hours and days before it made sense. But these verses are all about exactly the same thing. What it does is it draws a marked contrast between those who accept Jesus as Messiah and those who reject him. Initially, his family seemed to reject his claim as Savior of the world. And most certainly, we know that the scribes did that. And the thing about it is that's exactly where we start out. That's where we are at because we are born in sin, and there is nothing we can do to earn God's favor. So we start out just like that, not being part of the family of God, but our magnanimous, incredibly loving gracious Savior, he invites all of us to become part of his family. He he did everything necessary for us to be saved, and then he offers that salvation freely to all who will receive it. And so we don't have to fear rejection by him. We don't have to fear eternity in hell. No, as 1 John 5.13 so wonderfully proclaims, those of us who believe in the name of the Son of God may know may absolutely, positively know that we have eternal life. This whole passage is about that. You see, this passage makes it really clear to me. I think it helps us all understand that there are only two types of people in the world. 
those who are part of God's family through Christ Jesus and those who are not. Which begs the question, the most serious question, which type of person are you? There's only two types. There's no middle ground. Part of the family of God because of Jesus Christ are those who are not. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for making a way of salvation possible for us. And I pray, oh Lord, if there's any here who have not accepted you as Lord and Savior, please let them do it now in the quietness of their heart at this very moment where they understand, they proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is died, the one who died for our sins. He is sufficient for our salvation. And so therefore, God, let them just ask to be forgiven and to be saved by you. And I pray that they would understand that their life will be changed from that moment on because they are now part of the family of God. And for all of us, all of us who have already made that decision, who are part of the family of God. Oh, I pray that we would not take it for granted. I pray that we would not in any way just become casual in that or we would just become negligent in praising you. You are everything. You deserve our all. Help us love you with every part of us because truly you are worthy of all of that. Thank you, dear Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen.